I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 1 John chapter 2. Welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast with John Eldridge this week, sharing with you from chapter 2 in our uh, book group in story time. I'm reading to you, which I just love to do. And the title of this chapter is Third Graders at Normandy. God is growing us all up. Children, fathers, young men. How beautiful. How kind of John to remind us we are all at different places in our spiritual journeys. We are at different stages of maturing. Children in the faith know the basics. They know they are forgiven. The young men and women know other things. They understand the battle. Fathers and mothers are further along still. They know God intimately. We are all underway, and we are not all in the same place. This is very gracious and realistic and quite helpful when it comes to understanding your own life or the lives of those around you. If you think about it, you can probably name the children, young men, and fathers and mothers in your life. God understands where you are. As George MacDonald assured us, what father is not pleased with the first tottering attempt of his little one to walk? And God is absolutely committed to your growing up. What father would be satisfied with anything but the manly step of the full-grown son or daughter. Elijah was probably once like Lamont. Lamont is on her way to becoming an Elijah. To this, God has committed himself most fervently. As it was for many parents before, teaching our sons to drive was a hair-raising endeavor merging into traffic that felt like Han Solo pushing the Millennium Falcon into light speed, sudden braking that seemed equally certain to send me through the windshield. They were giving it a go. It was terrifying, and I was so proud of them. I was delighted with their efforts. But, of course, I would be more than disappointed if their driving was the same now, ten years later. And so it is with God. He is utterly delighted with our attempts at prayer. He loves our little prayers tucked into drawers. And he is calling us upward to grow into the maturity we were destined for, including mature prayers. Elijah was not tucking little prayers under rocks on the mountain. I doubt very much it would have rained if he had. But here's the problem. Most of us don't quite share God's fervent passion for our maturity. Really, now. If you stopped 10 people at random on their way out of church next Sunday and polled them, I doubt very much that you would find one in 10 who said, oh, my first and greatest commitment this afternoon is to mature. Like Bilbo, our natural investments lie in other things, lunch, a nap, the game, our general comfort, including getting others to cooperate with our agenda. Yet there is no mistaking the theme in Scripture. God is committed to growing us up. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, 
Ephesians 4, wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured from Colossians 4. Brothers, stop thinking like children, 1 Corinthians 14. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Hebrews chapter 6. Wait, knowing how to heal the sick by the laying on of hands is considered first-grade level stuff? I think I missed that class. But the call to grow up is very clear. And how does God provide for growing us up? What are his means? Situations that stretch us, strain us, push us beyond what we thought we could endure. Those very same circumstances that cause us to pray. This assumption is important for one simple reason. It changes your expectations. When you show up at the gym, you're not surprised or irritated that the trainer pushes you into a drenching sweat. It's what you came for. You'd be furious if your housemate expected this of you when you flop home on the couch after a long day's work. Perhaps you might begin to see the connection in some of your feelings towards God. Bilbo, Jill, and Eustace are being called up, and suddenly they find themselves in a dangerous part of the world facing threats they never dreamed of. Which brings me to the second assumption critical to effective prayer, a core assumption the Scripture holds about your life. We are at war. News reports in the fall of 2014 about the execution of children by ISIS guerrillas left us all speechless. We received a number of desperate emails crying out for prayer. Islamic extremists were going through villages in Iraq, executing men, women, and children. Christian families were among those targeted. Surely you read these reports. A family would be dragged from their home into the street. If the parents did not renounce Jesus Christ, their children were executed before their eyes. It was and remains horrible. Those reports lingered in my mind as I reread an often overlooked portion of the Christmas story. Herod was furious when he learned that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under because the wise men had told him the star first appeared to them about two years earlier. Herod's brutal action fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. A cry of anguish is heard in Ramah, weeping and mourning unrestrained. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. From Matthew chapter 2. The parallel is so stark, I want to ask for a moment of silence. I have never seen this part of the story portrayed in any Christmas pageant or manger scene. For many of us raised in middle America, this genocide was completely left out of our Christmas understanding. Our visions of the nativity were shaped by classic Christmas cards and by the lovely creche displays in parks 
on church lawns, and on many coffee tables. And while I still love those tableaus very much, I am convinced they are an almost total rewrite of the story. On the night before the massacre of the innocents, another urgent moment took place. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to try to kill the child. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. Again from Matthew 2. This too seems right out of the devastation in the Middle East. Refugees fleeing for their lives, taking cover in a foreign country. But nor have I seen this portrayed in the lovely imagery surrounding Christmas time, not at least in the 20th century, not in hometown American culture. I understand the imagery is dear to many of us, but it is also profoundly deceiving. It creates all sorts of warm feelings, associations, and expectations, many quite subconscious, of what the nature of the Christian life is going to be like for us. The omissions are, in fact, dangerous, the equivalent of ignoring the movements of ISIS. That adolescent part of me says, wait a minute, God is almighty, omnipotent, ruler of a hundred billion galaxies. His power makes a nuclear meltdown a mere sneeze. His son and their plan to rescue the world was in imminent danger. Why didn't God Almighty send his angel armies to protect young Jesus? Indeed, why did an angel have to come in the middle of the night and whisk the Holy Family away in secrecy, hiding them south of the border? Herod and his secret police were nothing compared to the living God. The story ought to make you wonder about your assumptions of what exactly is going on here and how God works in the world. Certainly, it ought to cause us to rethink our views on prayer. I asked, he didn't move, seems grossly out of touch in light of these stories. Perhaps this account of prayer from the life of Daniel will help. It begins with prayer and confusion. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel is troubled, as any of us would be. Why am I being given a vision about a great war? I wasn't looking for this. What can it mean? So, he devotes himself to prayer and fasting for three weeks. That detail alone sets Daniel apart from most of us. The longest I've fasted is three days, and it almost took me out. On the 21st day of his vigil, Daniel is walking along the banks of the Tigris River in the ancient kingdom of Babylon. I like that. I like to walk as I pray, too. Suddenly, a real, live angel of God appears. We know he's real and very much alive because his presence is so overwhelming. The men with Daniel are filled with terror and run for their lives. Daniel doesn't run. He can't even move. He is lying on his face, nearly in a trance. Don't you love the gripping detail of these stories? A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, 
Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Did you follow that? God answered Daniel's prayers the first day he prayed. He even sent an angel to personally bring his reply. But the angel was delayed for three weeks because a mighty fallen angel, a demon with the rank of a principality, held the Persian kingdom where Daniel lived under his rule and barred the way. God's angel had to fight his way in And at the end of their encounter, he told Daniel he was going to have to fight his way back out. The scriptures are a sort of wake-up call to the human race, a trumpet blast, to use Francis Thompson's phrase, from the hid battlements of eternity. One alarm they repeatedly sound is that we are all caught up in the midst of a collision of kingdoms, the kingdom of God advancing with force against the kingdom of darkness, which for the moment holds most of the world in its clutches. Is this your understanding of the world you find yourself in? Does this shape the way you pray and the way you interpret unanswered prayer? Now, yes, Jesus has come and that has changed everything. But maybe not like you think. The advent of Jesus at Christmas time accelerated the collision of kingdoms into global war. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and all his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, 
They did not love their lives so much so as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. From Revelation chapter 12. Look, you may not like the story you find yourself in, but your displeasure doesn't make it go away. If the execution of children by ISIS extremists doesn't clarify matters, I just don't know how much more evidence it's going to take to convince the church that we are at war. The dragon has declared war on all those who align themselves with Jesus. The moment we were born, we found ourselves in the midst of a fierce battle. If this doesn't shape your understanding of the role of prayer, you will find yourself repeatedly disappointed and disheartened. For one thing, prayer is not simply asking God to do stuff. Clearly, knowing this, can you begin to see why sweet little Jesus-be-with-us prayers are so grossly inadequate to our situation? Why Patch's understanding of the world is so utterly incomplete and heartbreaking? When Aslan lays his charge upon the children he loves, he is doing them a great honor. He knows what this will require, as did Jesus when he said to his dear ones, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Matthew 10. The metaphor so perfectly describes our situation, we almost want to smile, like when the young bride and groom are waving goodbye and grandfather leans over to grandmother and whispers, they have no idea what they've just gotten themselves into. The humor of absurd understatement. But sheep among wolves is, at the same time, so foreboding we decide not to think about it. Maybe he was just referring to the early disciples. To sum up, we are trying to clear away mistaken assumptions about God and his world so that we can better understand prayer. God is growing us all up. We find ourselves in the midst of a great and terrible war. Now, if I were him, I think I would have taken care of the first so that we could get on with the second. Let's get everyone whole and strong and filled with the power of God, and then we can take Normandy, spiritually speaking. Or I'd maybe even prefer the reverse. Overthrow the kingdom of darkness, rid the world of evil in one fell swoop, and then there'll be some breathing room to see humanity restored. Because honestly, to conduct the invasion while God is still growing us up looks to me like hitting the beach at Normandy, not with a battalion of Marines, but with Mrs. Simpson's third-grade class, the junior high youth group from First Press and a handful of adults chosen at random from the phone book. It looks like a hobbit with a handkerchief going to slay a dragon. But I did not write this story, and the one who did hasn't consulted me on the matter. So this is where we are, in precisely the same position Bilbo and the children in Narnia found themselves in. Perhaps that's why we love those stories. Something deep inside knows it to be true. Now, if you believe both assumptions, 
If they were woven into your deepest convictions about the world, you would want to learn to pray like a soldier wants to learn to use his weapon, like a smoke jumper wants to learn survival skills. We really have no idea what sort of breakthrough is actually possible until we learn to pray. Perhaps we, too, will be ending droughts and stopping wildfires. You've been listening to Moving Mountains, and, you know, I'll be honest, I know, I know. If I were him, I'd have done it one way or the other. I would have got everybody healed up and strong and filled with God and wholehearted, and then we'd be able to bring the kingdom and vanquish evil or... I think I'd probably prefer it the other way, that I wish what he'd have done is just completely vanquish evil and rid the world of it, and then we could all just sort of heal up and get better. But he's doing them both at the same time, obviously, all over the place in your life right now. He's growing us up, he's healing us, he's making us whole, and we find ourselves in the midst of a great and terrible war. And you will be ending droughts and stopping wildfires as you learn effective prayers, as we all grow in prayers, we mature into this. So this week, the book is out, and we're excited about that. Available wherever books are sold. Tell your friends, oh my goodness, if we can get this into the hands of a bunch of praying people, who knows what's going to happen in the world? I mean, good things. <laughs> 